0: Hey, world, Dr. Scott Sigmund here. Today's episode of the Ortho Show podcast is going to be sponsored by Ortho Laser Orthopedic Laser Centers. I am absolutely convinced that the effects of this pandemic are going to linger for months, if not years. The way in which we deliver medical care is going to be changed forever. We have no idea when the operating rooms are open. There's going to be a long line for elective surgery. And when they do reopen, we're not even sure if we're going to be at full capacity. Basically, there's going to be a huge backlog of elective joint replacement for the elderly. There's also going to be many young patients that are going to say, you know, I just can't do surgery right now, doc. I need to get back into the workforce. I need to earn some money. I need to provide for my family. So basically, we're going to have to be forced as, as docs to find alternative treatment options for our patients for acute and chronic pain. OrthoLaser, orthopedic laser centers powered by MLS M8 laser technology is going to be that solution. Uh, the FDA-cleared MLS M8 laser treatments are painless and only take about 10 minutes. So here's the deal, everybody. Our ortho laser centers are currently open in Boston, Newburgh, New York, Lexington, Kentucky, Pensacola, Florida, and soon to be opening in Atlanta, Hartford, and Portsmouth, New Hampshire. These franchise opportunities are available at this time all across the country. So whether you're an interested patient or a doctor who wants to know more, please visit www.ortholaserwithaz.com, again, www. ortholaser with a z.com to learn more
1: from medical media this is the ortho show
0: Hello world, Dr. Scott Sigmund, your favorite opioid sparing orthopedic surgeon here for another episode of the Ortho Show podcast. We have a very special guest again today, uh, Dr. Timothy Hewitt, who uh, is the former director of biomechanics at at, at the lab, as well as sports medicine research center at the Mayo Clinic, as well as the former director of the Sports Health and Performance Institute at Ohio State, and now is lead consultant for uh, Hewitt Consulting. So, you know. This guy, so you know, you're know, you kind of interesting, Tim, because I'm going to call you a unicorn, okay? You're a biomechanics unicorn. You have over 600 publications. You're actually engaging. You're great on the podium. And at the end of the day, there's really only one of you, isn't there?
1: Yeah, I, my colleague, Chris Cating at Ohio State, used to call me the scientist without a country because I belong to probably more than 25 different societies, everything from Biophysical Society to the American Orthopedic Society for Sports Medicine, and I don't really belong in any of those groups. It's it's funny. I'm I'm an outsider, uh, but I'm always looking inside. And and the thing that I think it gives me advantage in is people are so zoomed into their area, and I'm way zoomed out, and I can take a look at things dispassionately without inherent bias, without. I don't come with incoming uh, ideas or agendas. People ask me that all the time because sometimes it'll appear like I contradict myself. And they say, well, what's your agenda? What you said yesterday is different for this condition than it was for that condition. I said, because they're different and I'm coming and I'm looking at it without an agenda. And I think that's key.
0: So you look through the lens of science, right? You you're, you're basically... absolutely,
1: I just try to let dispassionate science guide what I do, but importantly i I was very much involved in really basic science, so molecular biophysics is is what I'm trained in, but I really wanted to be able to apply what I learned, and that's when I transitioned into molecular cardiovascular biology, and I jumped over into orthopedic sports medicine because There I saw the applications. And, you know, I love sports medicine because it's the wild, wild west of medicine, right? You guys do everything and anything, and you'll try the latest and greatest, and sometimes without any evidence behind it. And therefore, it gives an opportunity for a scientist like me to jump in and run experiments and see what works and see what doesn't.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's, I've been doing this for 25 years. And one thing's for sure. It seems like more often than not, when we try a new idea, oftentimes it's worse than the idea that we had before. And I've seen it cycle at this point. I don't know how many times, you know, and and the ACL, right? I mean, so, you know, yes, you're across all sports medicine, but you really have made a profound name for yourself within within the ACL. Let's let's face it. I like this. I say that you're like. You've reverse engineered the ACL for us to try and figure out what we need to do in in order to to make this better. So I want to go through a bunch of the things about the ACL, which I think are really quite profound with uh, the science that you've been doing and really try to help. Because our listeners, you know, the orthopedic surgeons, it's the medical device world, the pharma world. Uh, So we have some, you know, some regular people that are listening, too. So I think there'll be some really sort of good counsel. And we're going to really push you at the end because... As you said, there's a lot of contradictory stuff, and if we followed every rule of the science, I think we'd all be sitting in the house reading books because we'd all be worried about tearing our ACLs. But exactly. so let's start. Let's start with ACL prevention because, you know, I got involved. You know, Bert Mandelbaum's a good friend of mine out in Santa Monica, and he helped to develop the FIFA 11, you know, program, which was 11 exercises that were put together to really try and strengthen the core. Uh, especially for young female athletes to try and you know, do ACL uh, prevention. And I actually am a big proponent of that and have been using that for our patients. So, so talk to us about active stance because I know that that's one of the things that you've really researched. Well, I mean, I think of the RG three video when he's jumping off the box and you see his knees collapse and how many ACL tears has he had. So, so talk to us about active stance and how that's an important role in having to, to prevent ACL injury.
1: So the important part of that is active. So the key is high-risk athletes, it's it's not that they aren't strong or that they aren't fast. High velocity, high force actually leads to ACL tears. And some of the greatest athletes like RG3 are so well-trained in their skill set and what they do for their sport, they actually create neuromuscular imbalances. So, A great thing to to make a, a great movement to juke and fake out an opponent on the field can lead to loads at your hip and knee joint that the ACL can't sustain over time. So, activating especially the posterior chain musculature, especially the glutes, the biggest, most powerful muscle in your body that basically is the proximal controller of where your femoral head lies and also. Therefore, the distal controller of that femur bone as well and where your hip and your knee are aligned. So glute activation is absolutely crucial. So when, in, when you get into that active stance, if you're doing it properly, so you think of yourself as, as a, a football linebacker or a hockey goalie ready to defend against a puck or ready to run down a running back coming in the frontal plane, that you're ready to act in all three planes. With your glute and your hip, and especially your hip external rotators pre-activated and externally rotating, abducting the the or, I'm Sorry, abducting the the hip and the knee.
0: So that sort of goes along also with the block test, right? Because I know that that you're a big fan of the block test, being I able am. to identify uh, potential uh, patient or people or sports or athletes that may be predisposed to an ACL uh, injury. So talk to us about what the block test is, and then I think it's super important because you can train yourself to become better at the block test, which in theory yes. is going to prevent ACL injury. So walk us through that.
1: So we started out with that test, dropping off a, a block with the idea that it, it, it actually is a good measure of neuromotor coordination. So if you're dropping off a foot high box and going into a max vertical jump, if you're well-coordinated, good to have have good neuromotor coordination, you're actually going to jump higher off that box because you have more momentum and you you can generate more power. If you don't have good neuromotor coordination and you drop off of a box, actually you're going to jump lower than you can with a counter movement jump off the floor. So first of all, it's a neuromotor test. Second, it's a power test. So a, a vertical jump test is one of the best, most reliable tests of power. And what we're looking for is that ratio between power and neuromotor control, because if you have a lot of power without a lot of neuromotor control, you're at increased risk. So if you can track people over time in the amount of neuromotor control relative to the amount of power they have, and you can train them with neuromuscular exercises that enhance that neuromotor control relative to power, you can decrease their relative risk. And that's been demonstrated Over and over and over again, Uh, colleagues of mine in Australia who see Australia has a really high risk of ACL tears. And my friends over there, Julian Feller, Kate Webster. uh, Julian is kind of the the ACL guru. You know, does all the Aussie rules footy players ACLs. We looked at their data, and and if you look per exposure. Uh, Australia has more ACLs than any other country in the world, by far, mainly because of footy. And because it, so we have really focused on their populations. But Kate and I recently published uh, um, an umbrella analysis, which is a meta-analysis of all the meta-analyses in the literature. And basically what we demonstrated was for all ACL tears, if you follow the advice I just gave you, you can decrease the risk of an all ACL tears by half, by 50%, and you can reduce the risk of non-contact ACL tears in women by two-thirds. So this is absolutely crucial. and it's We published one of the very first studies on this back in 1999, tells you how far I go back, more than 20 years, and we demonstrated the same thing. You could reduce the risk. Of all ACL tears, by about half, non-contact ACL tears in females by two-thirds, and that's striking. And that data is extremely solid, as solid as any data in orthopedics and sports medicine that you'll see.
0: So let, let's keep it really simple here. So I want to I want to go back on this because I really think it's 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 really important. So so you're standing on the block, okay, and yep. you have this athlete jump up as high as they can, and then you watch them land right? And, and watching where their knees and their hips are in space, oftentimes their knees will collapse inwards, uh, become sort of knock-kneed, if you will. And that's what we're talking about. Those patients are, are at risk because of poor neuromuscular control. You, yes. can then tra- you can train them, right, through core strengthening and other things. You can then take another video of them jumping off and show them having improved neuromuscular control, and you can then reduce the number of ACL tears.
1: Yes, you can. But between half and two thirds—that is correct.
0: That's really profound, and I think for the parents that are out there, I mean, I can tell you, I'm a, a, a parent of, of sports. Uh, the kids are in sports, and I just watched my kid on—he uh, was—it was early on in the season, indoor lacrosse, and he goes to make a little pivot, has a non-contact injury, and I saw him tear his ACL, and it was just like—and it's exactly what happened. He wasn't prepared, hadn't been doing his stretching, hasn't been working out and then goes out and and does this, and this is how he tears his ACL. So, you know, it's one of the worst conversations you can have as a sports medicine doctor when you're in the room with a 16-year-old, and you've just told them that, you know, their college scholarship may be on hold because they've torn their ACL, and it's going to take a long time to get better. So I think as good as we are at reconstruction and repair, it's so important to be able to have uh, prevention as one of the things that we're really looking at. So thank you for all of your efforts in that regard. So I want to switch gears here a little bit. We're going to stay in ACLs. I think we'll stay here for the, for this podcast, but one of the more interesting uh, sort of uh, articles I've just seen was about concussions. And as we know, concussions are such a major issue and concern, not just within football, the number one sport for for concussions is actually soccer. Uh, and so the list runs on down. So you have some evidence now. You took a look, and I want you to tell, to give the listeners an, an idea here that the people or athletes that have had concussions are at a higher risk for a potential ACL tear down the road. So, talk to us about that. Uh,
1: again, extremely solid evidence. So, we first did this is a work of April McPherson out of my laboratory at Mayo Clinic, and just a stellar. PhD student who is now a a research fellow with the USOC, the, the United States Olympic Committee. And the question she posed for her thesis was how associated with brain activity is risk of knee injury and specific ACL injury. So she started out her project and we did a meta-analysis again of all the publications in the literature. And it, again, extremely clear. This is, this is more than a theory. It's a close to a fact. If you have a concussion, you have a significantly higher risk. So somewhere between say 30 and 40% greater risk of having a knee injury or an ACL tear in the following two years. So the meta-analysis was really strong, really compelling. So what we did and what April did next was dive into the Mayo Clinic's REP, which is the Rochester Epidemiology Project. It's been NIH funded since 1960-ish and basically has a really solid data set of the same people over time. for some reason once you get into Minnesota you never leave and so over time we we tracked these people and what we did in in a very large data set in a cohorts prospective cohort study was show the exact same thing even wow. if you're not an athlete if you have a prior concussion within the next 2 years your risk of a musculoskeletal lower extremity injury knee and ACL is significantly increased by about a third so
0: that's that's amazing
1: the data is really compelling
0: yeah so it's like in minnesota you're like michael suck in in pennsylvania you know you guys keep all the data on everybody and (laughs) they keep coming back
1: it it just keeps expanding because the mayo clinic health system just keeps growing and growing so it used to be just the mothership in rochester and now it's like 40 counties in minnesota like 30 counties in wisconsin and 20 counties in iowa And, and it just keeps growing and it It's these same individuals over time there. There is very little inflow and outflow in the Midwest in those areas. So it's a it's a great tool to use to dive into questions like this. And the question just hit us right. And when we asked the question, we we literally just got online, ran the the web based uh, rep data set. And and the difference was clear. It's somewhere between a quarter and a half higher risk of a, of a lower extremity musculoskeletal injury after you've had a concussion.
0: Yeah. So that, I mean, that lends itself to say, you know, we should be screening these athletes, right? We should know who's had the concussion. They then absolutely need to be through some sort of a neuromuscular, you know, prevention pattern for, uh, for lower extremity knee injury. So uh, some resident or fellow out there, if you're listening, you know, this would be a great protocol to establish to see if you can make a difference in, in altering and changing that. Um, so, you know, return to sport, we've all been taught initially, oh, it's six months. It's a time thing, right? Maybe it's not, now, it's not six months anymore. Now it's going to go out to to eight months. But but realistically, that's a terrible way to look at return to sport, right? And we need specific variables, measurable tools that we can use to say, yes, you have passed this. And so therefore you can go to return to sport. So talk to us a little bit about that. Then there's also, I think, an important component is the psychological readiness as well which is another thing that you've talked about so talk to us about what type of you know what type of testing there is that we, that we can feel comfortable with our return to sport for our athletes and our loved ones and when do you think about psychological readiness as well
1: first of all let's talk about the time component very bad idea just using time okay because uh, greg meyer and my group and others have More recent data has shown, too, there's really very little association, for example, between neuromotor control, uh, regaining that, the rehab process, and time. It's really variable from person to person. So just using time. So, oh, it's been probably, oh, I was at an AOSSM meeting like 13 years ago. I think it was around 2007 where I started looking at all the data and I was just sitting back and listening to talks and I started scribbling this down on a napkin about all the things. You have to start thinking about the biology of healing. You have to start thinking about joint health because if you look at all these parameters and Chris Nageli, a student of mine, published this paper 10 years later, I sat on this idea for over 10 years because I thought people are gonna just kill me for this. Like what a dumb idea it is. But what I said was, if you're not using objective criteria, here are all the things. The maturation, the religamentization of that graft, depending on the type of graft, a bone tendon bone takes at least 12 months. A hamstring probably takes 24 months, if not more. If you look at Scott Dye's seminal date on bone scans, that knee joint post-injury and reconstruction stays hot 18 to 24 months. If you look at return of balance or any even really crude measure of proprioception or kinesthesia, that doesn't come back till about two years. So I started putting this idea together and I said, look, if you're not going to use objective criteria and you're just going to say time, and I said this kind of tongue in cheek because I know people wouldn't listen to it, then you better wait two years. I presented this two years ago at an AOSSM meeting and I thought I was going to get massacred. And actually, as I came down off the podium and walking back to my seat, both Jimmy Andrews and Freddie Fu, I do not lie, came up to me and said, Tim, you're, they both said, you're absolutely right. No one's going to listen to you, but you're absolutely right. <laughs> so what, what our guys at Mayo, guys like Mike Stewart do with that information is he takes that paper in with his young patient and said, I know your parents and your coach and you are going to tell me I want to get back at six months. Here's what the science says. The science says two years, let's negotiate. And basically where we got to besides repeated longitudinal serial testing with tests like that drop vertical jump we talked about. They don't let people back there until at least nine months. And if they have other associated injuries, meniscal injuries, other ligament injuries, at least uh, at least 12 months. But that combined with utilization of very specific, very targeted neuromotor tests that make sure not only is your ligament healed enough to go back and not only is your knee knee healed enough and, and that your bone scan isn't super hot, but you have neuromotor control to protect that joint in high stress, high risk situations. And the the problem with this is if you're a young, highly active athlete going back to the same level of sport, you have a risk between a quarter and a third of having a second ACL injury. And when you talked earlier about having that discussion with the patient and the parent at 16 years old, well, at age 17 and you're having that discussion again, I had in my lab at Cincinnati Children's Hospital at one time, six researchers on my team that had two ACL ruptures and reconstructions. That second one is really devastating.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I think that, uh, you know, we all talk about, you know, game timing and season timing and trying to get people back based on on what's available. But at the end of the day, you know, these 17-year-olds are going to be 37 one day. And uh, you take a look at the uh, MRIs and the injuries that occur, you know, for many of these high energy injuries, it's not just the ACL. They get bone bruises. They get divots in their articular cartilage. They may have partial ligament injuries elsewhere. And then, you know, I think it's the Swedish registry where they they look at these, these MRIs over decades, and you can just see the deterioration. And it's actually that injury, that ACL injury, the first or maybe the second one, that sets them and predisposes them to osteoarthritis later in life. So not only are we worried about the college scholarship and, and the season, but we're not even thinking about, about long-term. So if you, for the parents that are out there who are worried about their kids, and it's a simple thing, but could you give us a single sort of best indicator as what you think, you know, somebody, a, a regular person could look at to say, does this kid look like they're getting close to getting ready? Again,
1: have them get a, get a milk crate, have anything that's 12 inches high, that's solid have them drop off that box, do that drop test, take a video straight at them and see how much collapse they have at the hip and knee between just before landing and the maximum collapse they have. If that's more than say a third or a half of that distance between their knee joints collapse in, they have significantly higher risk. Now it's not just about risk assessment. What it's about is risk reduction. So Jump in there, do their neuromotor training. Now we have multiple. The, the, the Journal of Athletic Training, we published in 2018. The APTA, we put up uh, clinical practice guidelines in 2018. We published our meta analysis. We have, there's tons of great uh, tools. For example, the one that we published, the clinical practice guideline, is published in the Journal of Orthopedic Sport Physical Therapy in 2018. And it has simple videos in the appendices that you go online and you can see the exercises to use. And it has all of the different programs. It's, it's really a great resource. So if you want to look that up, just Google my name and JOSPT, it would be the latest paper in 2018. Click on it. And it has great online video appendices to show you what to do to reduce that relative risk between a half and two thirds, between 50 and 67%.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. The Google machine. I mean, we can all be so much smarter now. We used to rely on having to have the physical therapist and all of that, but there's really so many tools that are available to us. So thank you for putting that together. I can tell you right now when we're done, we're going to put that onto the website as well. So people will have access to that uh, I'll throw that into my repertoire for my patients as well. Uh, so when we get to that third and fourth month, we'll start the training for them early on in the process. That's great. Tim, I can't I, I can't thank you enough, man. This was great. You're such an absolute uh, guru in this area. You're such a unique individual. We appreciate all the hard work that you've done for us as clinicians to have science to be able to rely on. So thank you so much for being a, a member of the show today.
1: Thanks, Scott. I really appreciate you and your time.
0: This is Dr. Scott Sigmund. I want to thank our sponsor, ortho, uh, ortho Laser Orthopedic Laser Centers. You can find us on the Ortho Show podcast at all places that you listen uh, to podcasts. Again, Dr. Scott Sigmund, hashtag follow the fro, host of the Ortho Show. Till next time.